Today we're discussing advocacy in nursing. This is not just a clear case of nurses speaking up to help patients. That in itself can be hard enough in a healthcare system that wants to look after itself. What we want to unpack today is what advocacy might mean at an individual level, a ward level and a systems level. Do all nurses have to be advocates? Is that an obligation for them? Can there be too much advocacy? Are the boundaries that might be crossed? Are we just giving in to patients or parent demands? And in paediatrics, we have to consider the interests of both the patients as the children and the parents. And when we're considering the children, considering the children's interests now and into the future. Welcome to Essential Ethics and this podcast in our series on nursing ethics. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre here at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. To help us consider the complexity of advocacy in nursing, I'm joined by Professor Fiona Newell, Director of Nursing Research and Education here at Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Fiona. Hi, John. Lovely to be here. And I'm also joined by Eve Inglis, who's a Nurse Unit Manager of the Wallaby Ward here at Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Eve. Thanks for having me, John. And to help us consider the ethical issues that underlie nursing ethics, we're joined by Professor Lynn Gillam from the Children's Bioethics Centre and the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you, John. Fiona, I might start with you and ask what does advocacy in nursing mean to you? It's an interesting question, John, because I think all nurses should be advocating for patients. But I do have a bit of a gut sense that maybe we overuse the word advocacy And sometimes we're just doing what we should be doing as nurses, which is providing care. And I think it's important to understand when we need to use advocacy so that hopefully it has better impact because we're not overusing it. So I think nurses should be advocates. But for me, it comes into play when we think that there is some kind of inability of the patient or family to achieve something that we think is probably appropriate um, and that we can advocate then. But sometimes we might get there just by asking a question and pointing out that something's been missed. And is that advocacy or is that just doing your job? Does it really matter? I'm not sure. The important thing is that we're putting the patient and family at the forefront and making sure that their needs are prioritised in the way we provide care. Sounds a bit like ethics. It's out there, it's everywhere, it's doing work all the time and maybe there's some definitions that we might uh, get Mm. into or see what we mean Mm. by ethics. Eve, what about you? What does advocacy mean for you as a nurse? I think previously being a bedside clinical nurse and then going into management, my thoughts about nursing advocacy have evolved over time as I've been in different roles and I've had different interactions with patients, parents and staff. I think nursing in advocacy primarily is about being a a voice for someone when they may not be able to. I think that's one of the kind of core things about advocacy in nursing. But also it's important that we recognise that and act on it when it's appropriate. And I think we'll probably unpack a few situations and scenarios about looking at different points of view in advocacy in nursing and thinking about who it is we are trying to advocate for and what we are trying to advocate for. Is it for the patient? Is it for the parents? Sometimes those differ. Is it for our own benefit or because we're trying to protect a greater good, if you like, rather than just one patient or family. It gets very, very complex. I think one of the other biggest things about advocacy in nursing is ensuring that the patients and or parents, if it's suitable, uh, have the right to make decisions about their own health and their journey through um, hospital or their treatment. And I think our role as healthcare professionals is ensuring that they have the right information and resources to be able to make those decisions. I think that's one of the core things about advocacy in nursing. I think it's really wonderful that you're talking about that that decision-making and and you're framing up nursing as, as part of our collegiate healthcare professional clinician trying to aim for this. But actually, there's also a special role 
that nurses have uh, within that, I think. So see, I'm going to sort of road test this on you, see what you think, because I'm seeing patients and you know, kids and parents coming into a healthcare system that's sort of big and clunky and mm. crazy and, and hard to understand and certainly really hard to navigate. And that, uh, you know, being a medical person, I probably contribute to quite a bit of that hardness to navigate stuff. And that the nurses may be there at a very reachable level for people who feel more comfortable uh, with the nurses. Perhaps it's the sort of nearer, nearer their age, uh, all sorts of things. They don't sense there's such a gap between them and the doctors, which... I, I love that inherent in what you just said is that all nurses are younger, which is wonderful. <laughs> I think that there is no doubt that nurses are nearer the patient. You know, if you think about the context of care within an inpatient institution like a hospital, nurses are allocated to a patient for the duration of a shift. They see that patient repeatedly on subsequent shifts and they get to know the family. They understand the challenges that a family might have because they have a conversation with the child or the family while they're providing cares, while they're giving medications, while they're doing OBS, you get to understand what's going on. And I think that gives you a really good sense of, as Eve was saying, when perhaps things haven't gone as clearly or been communicated as clearly as what they could, which gives you the opportunity to be able to have a conversation to try and see if we can improve the way that level of communication is happening. Um, and I think that that's a really lovely example Eve gave of being able to make sure that the information communicated is understood because I think there is still in society sometimes that hierarchy where I can't question the doctor, but I can tell the nurse that I didn't understand what was said. And then we can help and advocate for having that conversation more clearly in the future. So can we acknowledge, Fiona, that, that that is there as a thought and attitude, not rightly, not, mm. not, not that should be there, but perhaps just happens to be, can we own that? Um, oh, I think so. Similarly, that nurses can be that uh, that conduit yep. to the system. I'm seeing now this sort of model whereby there's a patient and a nurse up against a system, <laughs> as well as up against disease. Sometimes it feels like that, John. <laughs> no, um, I think uh, nurses spend a lot more time with the patient and the parent than a medical team or um, you know a clinician does, purely because that's our different roles. Hmm. You know, we each have roles and duties to fulfil in our positions. And I'm thinking about, you know, a medical ward round being conducted on a ward. And, you know, it's so vital that the nurse is present at that ward round because we know what questions we want to ask. We know what questions the family want to ask. And we can help be that voice for the patient or the parent, you know, ward rounds sometimes happen quite quickly and, you know, everyone's busy and you need to move on and press through the other 15 patients that you've got to see. And it's an interesting question that was posed before. Is that us being an advocate for the patient or is that doing our job? Oh, exactly. And I think there's lots here. And we're going to get to that in a moment, but already we've opened up uh, so many uh, points where I think ethics are at play. And I think one of the things we want to do in essential ethics is just see where ethics is in the things that we're doing that are just everyday things. But I really feel, and I hope perhaps you agree with this, that having a name to it, seeing it for what it is or part of it just really helps you do it better mm. and quicker better the next time. Mm. So, Lynn. Are there some things we've opened up? What are you hearing that, that's ethical in all of this? Oh, I'm hearing lots that's ethical. In particular, what I'm hearing is reference to the idea of autonomy, of the right to, to make choices. And in our paediatric setting, that's typically parents um, having a right to make a choice for their child, but also their child having a voice. And I think, Eve, you talked earlier about um, advocacy is about providing people with a voice when they don't have it or maybe amplifying their voice. So it seems to me that's a really strong ethical foundation for ad advocacy. This also tells us about a potential ethical limit to advocacy. So one of the things I reflect on a lot when I'm thinking about the ethics of advocacy is that it's not, advocacy in, is not self-justifying and it's 
So if you say, I'm advocating for my patient, this is what they want, that in itself does not make it the right thing to do. So what the patient wants or what the parents want might be based on lack of information, for example. So in fact, the advocacy is to get them the information rather than to get them what they've asked for. It may turn out that what parents want for their child is actually not in their child's best interest. So saying, I'm just advocating for these parents um, is, is not going to be the right thing to do. So there's an element of ethical judgment, I think, that needs to go on um, before just giving voice to a desire that's expressed. Then I think the other side might be that I wonder if sometimes advocacy is needed when parents or the patient don't even realise. For example, there might be some service that's beneficial to them that they could get access to but they don't know about. Um, Maybe even, for example, if the, the child is unwell or doesn't like the food, there are ways that they could be changed but families don't know that so they don't even ask. Um, so advocacy might be going beyond what parents and families or children have asked for to actually open them up mm. to choice. So there's a, while there's a strong connection with the idea of autonomy and choice, um, I think it also extends out more broadly to best interests. In the end, I wonder, end up wondering if advocacy is any different from ethics. Maybe they're the same thing and maybe, except that advocacy sounds more active mm. and it sounds more like a thing you would need to do when there are barriers in some way. So your usual practice is to act in the best interests of the child to respect the ch- and hear the child's voice, to respect parental autonomy and so on. But maybe advocacy is needed when that's hard for some reason and you need to go the extra yard. As soon as I say the extra yard, I always start worrying about how many extra yards and I wonder even, Fiona, if that's sometimes an issue in advocacy. So if you should advocate for your patient or for the mm. family... How far does that oblige you to go? Should you camp outside the CEO's office for a month <laughs> to to achieve something for this family, or, or you know, are there are there some limits to that? So when I start thinking about it through an ethical lens, those are some of the questions that come up for me. And I think, Lynn, you're also describing uh, justice, aren't you? When you talk about there are things there that families just don't know that are there. And, and you mentioned it might be in the best interest to have, but in a sense to me that that's about justice and a system that doesn't necessarily let people know evenly about what's Absolutely. around. Absolutely. So, yes, obviously some people have more access to information or more capacity to go out and get things or find out about things than others, and yet if there's a service that's open to all, it should be accessible to all practically, you know, they need to actually get access to it. So maybe one of the aspects of advocacy is, um, I guess, balancing things up when there's an it's imbalance. Fair, natural justice, isn't it, that... Uh that comes into to some of Potentially. that. Potentially. And but then if we're thinking about the idea of justice, that also makes me think about the difference between advocating for one patient or one family to get something that might be good for them. But on the other hand, there are lots of other patients and families as well. And we hospital systems don't have unlimited resources. So maybe it's not in the end just going to be about what that family wants or what would be good for their child. So we maybe we'll We're bear that thought that. in mind. It's going to be very interesting. And, Lynn, I mean, the other thing that's in there because we, you know, we do use the, the principles is, of course, is is preventing harm and nurses in their advocacy uh, doing that uh, time and time again. Yeah, and, and I'm actually wondering, John, you know, I posed the question before, how far should you go? I'm wondering if the degree to which a child is at risk of harm is part of the answer to the question, how far should you go? So it's one thing maybe to be advocating for a change of menu for Mm. the child because they don't like peas, which is very normal and natural. Um, But if they're actually at significant risk of harm, maybe that's the thing that that Mm. gives you the greater obligation to take more steps and maybe to stick your neck out a bit more? Is advocacy about sticking your neck out? I would hope not. Um, I would hope not, quite honestly. You know, I'd like to think that 
even in the scenario we talked about before where maybe there's been communication from the medical team to the patient and the family that they haven't understood and the nurse can step in to help understand. If we approach those kind of encounters with a we're all in this together and we're just trying to make it the best we can for the patient and the family, then I think we shouldn't have to stick our neck out. Mm. I think it should be a matter of us being able to raise the issues um, and maybe it only becomes an advocacy issue when the issue isn't heard. Right. And then we might have to reframe our argument, use different evidence, use different Mm -hmm. skills to secure the engagement we think is needed. But I'd still like to think that if we are reasoned in the way we communicate, that Mm. should happen. I often say to people, nurses need to sometimes be a bit better about using evidence in their arguments than just emotion because it's too easy sometimes to wash the significance of what you're saying when you're just communicating emotion Mm. rather than based on this, this and this, I am concerned about this patient and family. Mm. And so I think if we can do that well, we can hopefully reduce any tensions. Not always, Mm. but I think there are ways of doing that. Mm. It's just raised something I hadn't thought about before in ethical terms. So if someone's advocating, they're advocating to another person. So the other person, John, might be you as a doctor being advocated to, perhaps for more information for the family. That gives you an ethical responsibility as well, doesn't it? So if you're the one being advocated to, I think there's an ethically appropriate way to respond to that and that you have you have an obligation to respond appropriately, mm. uh, which is probably along the lines that you were suggesting, Fiona, of taking the position that, well, we're all trying to help this family. Yep. So whatever you're saying to me is something that I should take seriously and take on board rather than dismiss because it's... Yeah. And if we take the emotion out of it, it's easier to do that because I'm not saying, John, you don't care enough about this patient and family. Where are your feelings? How can you be doing this? I'm saying the patient and family don't seem to understand the link between this diagnosis and this treatment. It seems there's a few steps in there that they're not getting. Do you think we could go back in and have another conversation and see if we can carry that over? Yeah. Really important difference. So I think, Leonard, there's actually two responses there, isn't there? There's the response of the obligation back to the patient because see, mm. something needs to happen, but there's actually the response to the person advocating. I think that's also where you're getting, mm. Fiona, that this is just could be, as we think about your comment, could just be clinical care mm. that you've described. Um, but if I'm not receptive or you know, rude, frankly, and of course we know that that happens... Um, then it sort of shifts a little, steps up a gear, and maybe mm. that then becomes advocacy. So I hope that this is mm. not just our audience isn't just nursing staff because I really think that appreciating the difficulty mm. that some people can have, and you know, particularly a new grad, particularly mm. um, someone you know, younger in the system, you guys wouldn't have any trouble. <laughs> Approaching me, and uh, but I hope that a young person too would mm. would would be able to approach me, and then I would have the right response to them. So I think Fiona, you're sort of answering that question, isn't it? What is just clinical care? So is mm. telling me that the drug dose is wrong? Mm. Is that clinical care? Or is that advocacy? Well, it might just depend on how mm. I respond to that about what might mm. be needed. Yeah, it could well be. I think it's a, you know. That's where, you know, I didn't mean to be contentious saying, you know, not being sure where advocacy and good clinical care diverge because I'm not sure they always do. I think Mm. it's probably a continuum and where you draw the line, one person might draw the line differently than the next person. But I think it starts with having a professional engagement in what you're doing and acting as a professional. And then you use the things in your toolkit to swing along that pendulum depending upon what responses you get. Mm. Well, I think the toolkit's great because we have a podcast about the, the toolkit and I think that the idea of these podcasts too, Fiona, yeah. is that our, our nursing staff are getting some language and facility and ethics to bring to that mm. conversation, yeah. which is really good. Eve, what about you? I mean, what? Uh, how do you see kind of clinical care and, and advocacy? I mean, do you need to be a nurse advocate or can you just deliver good care? I've had a little think about this question, John, and I feel as though to provide clinical care to the best of our ability, we look at the holistic picture and advocacy definitely comes into that 
you know, family-centred best care model that we work by. So I think nurses probably advocate for patients and parents sometimes without being aware of it. I think it probably comes quite naturally to some people. Other people will need to be more mindful in how they do that. When you were just having that previous discussion, I thought about an example of, say, a medical procedure being undertaken on a small child and it being very stressful and quite traumatic for that patient. And I would say most nurses have probably found themselves in this situation. The procedure, for example, an IV cannulation may have been failed on the first or second attempts and the patient's becoming more and more distressed, traumatised. If the parent's in the room, they're probably becoming quite traumatised and distressed themselves. And then it reaches a point where that nurse probably feels a duty to intervene and say, this is not in the best interests of this patient and this parent at this time. I, I see that as advocating for that patient and parent at that time because they probably feel this child needs this treatment right now mm-hmm. and the doctor or whoever the person performing that procedure may be able to have conversation and an interaction either just with the nurse or, you know, whoever's advocating for that patient at that time or with the patient and parent as well, whatever they deem suitable. But it's a conversation about weighing up the risks and it goes back to what Lynn was saying earlier about what what is the risk to the patient if that barrier is not addressed at that time? Yeah. Is the child septic and they need IV treatment right now, in which case the nurse has advocated for the patient, but the person performing the procedure has the insight that actually it's really important we get this treatment started as soon as possible yeah. or can it wait? So I think it's about people putting their views on the table, uh, they're advocating, mm. but then having a, a conversation in terms of the risk versus benefit at that time. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think <laughs> you're sort of bringing the staff to a, you know, a, a clin- good, solid clinical discussion together as professionals yeah, yeah. seeing different elements of, of the case and, uh, and that's a really Im- mm. important role. Yeah. I think what you said is really important because you've suggested that the person advocating doesn't ha- have to know the answer uh, and, in fact, doesn't even need to be motivated by that belief that they know the answer. So here's an important consideration. This child and this these parents are being traumatised. So the advocacy is to get that noticed by the, by the decision maker, mm. I guess. Um, but then there's got to be a level of trust in the end, doesn't there, that the decision maker will take that on board. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the interesting ethical questions about advocacy is what to do and how far to go if the decision maker is not taking on it. So if you raise that that issue and it's dismissed by the whoever's mm. doing the procedure, how far and what tools and strategies should you employ in order to get your voice heard? And that's where I do think it really depends a lot on, as you were saying, the harm. Yeah. Mm. I think the, it depends on child. who you are. You know, if you're, a, as you alluded to before, a graduate nurse and you don't have much experience, but you've got a sense that something's not quite right, it's probably not appropriate that you contact the consultant of the res- resident or registrar who's trying to put that drip in mm. and go straight to them. I would be going to your mentor, a preceptor, the nurse in charge, maybe even your num, your nurse unit manager to say, look, I'm in this situation. I've had, I've made an excuse. I've ducked out for a minute because I'm really worried. I don't quite know what to do or I think this is what I should do, but I need some backup. Yep. And you seek support. Yep. If you're the nurse in charge and you're in there doing that, then you're probably going to feel far more confident to yep. say, look here, I think you need to stop. Mum, we're going to have a bit of a break here on doing the drip for Susie. You just give her a cuddle and we'll be back in a moment, have the conversation mm. outside. Mm. So I think it depends on who you are in yep. the spectrum. And I think that's where, as we alluded to, I think Eve said before, I think advocacy and our skill in using it depends on a continuum of where you are in your career and how you use advocacy to achieve different things. Is that the sort of thing you're directly training the young nurses on the ward to do and respond in that way? I think we have conversations about giving and receiving feedback. 
um, which I think takes that into account a little bit. We certainly have our wonderful clinical ethics program now that's for nurses that teaches nurses principles of ethics, which is wonderful here at RCH. And I'm sure we're happy to share that with other institutions if they'd like to jump on the bandwagon. Um, but I think it is something where um, it there's probably not a, a course in advocacy within nursing, but I would like to think that when we are teaching nurses here at RCH, we have something called the nursing competency framework. And for each skill that we use, we talk about the knowledge, the skills and the attributes involved. And I'd like to think that when we're talking about the attributes of anything, we are thinking about the patient and family and where when things don't go right, we might need to step up and have those conversations. Very interesting. Yes, Eve? One of the things that come to mind for this discussion is about empowering and it's empowering your junior nursing staff. It's empowering your senior nursing staff. It's about empowering the patient and the parent and, you know, the rest of the team. So I think that probably plays quite a large role in equipping nurses with skills to be able to confidently, comfortably, respectfully advocate for whatever they're advocating for. It's about supporting and empowering them to be able to do that rather than teaching them per se. Mm-hmm. We might need to change the uh, the motto of essential ethics to be empowered instead of <laughs> just be inspired. It might be more <laughs> yeah, practical. Maybe we need both. Eve, have you got any other examples of where nursing advocacy might be needed? Yes, I would like to give you an example, John. I'm going to refer to a patient, BN. BN was a 13-year-old girl at the time who sustained a spinal cord injury and ended up becoming a paraplegic. Six weeks after her initial accident, uh, she was still experiencing quite significant pain from the accident and the surgery. And she was really struggling to adjust to her new situation. But at the same time, um, it was really vital for her to engage in the rehabilitation program to aid in um, her very, very lengthy recovery. Her parents thought at the time that the pain should have subsided and that they were really reluctant to accept or have her take any of the prescribed analgesia. And this was simple analgesia like um, paracetamol, but then some, you know, stronger narcotic type medications. One particular time BN was in tears and she was stating that she absolutely could not do her rehabilitation program without any pain relief on board. And this was a really complex scenario because while the treating team and the nurses at the bedside were assessing BN and could see that she was in pain and she was refusing to complete the rehab program, her parents were in a way being barriers because they were not wanting to consent to giving her analgesia, which was actually going to aid her recovery. And this was really complex. So, um, yeah, opening up the discussion. So, Lynn, this is not unlike some of the cases that we that we talk about and we see um, sometimes. What, what, what do you think... Is, is happening or how do we go about just trying to untangle this? So if we put our ethics hat on to begin with... Um, so Any other hats to put on there? Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> Others have other hats. I only have one. Um, so with my only hat on, John, <laughs> this is a situation where uh, parents are disagreeing with the medical recommendation and it's clear that it's having an impact um, on the child. So we would ask, is the parent's view within the zone of parental discretion? Um, our question is, is it cause, causing significant harm to the child? I would say pretty clearly it is because it's causing the child avoidable play, pain at the moment in an attempt to, to do the rehab exercises. But it's also going, it sounds like it will have a significantly detrimental long-term impact if she's not able to engage in the rehab program properly. So their wishes are outside the zone of parental discretion. Therefore, we shouldn't go along with them. We should override them. End of ethical analysis. Where that doesn't get you is how to act on that decision. So there we are. I've made an ethical evaluation. I've analysed, come to a conclusion. But now what? And I'm wondering if that's where maybe advocacy so you've in. fallen short of a pronouncement, I think, there, Lynn. Is it because it's to do with pain? It's clear clear that she's in pain and therefore... Uh, in the short term, yes. In the immediate term, I think 
provided her pain is obvious, and she, it sounds like she's able to report pain, Eve. It's not that it, she's a... Um, like if she were non-verbal, for example, you would have to make some inferences and maybe that's a bit less reliable. But if you've got a 13-year-old who says that she's in pain, you've got good reason to think that she would be in pain. She's got all the physical signs of being in pain. Um, you, you, the pain's pretty conclusive. But also long-term, if she ends up with less functions, less physical function than she could have because the rehab wasn't as successful as it could have been because she didn't get pain relief to do the exercises. It's not just pain, it's also set back to her interests longer term. So I think what you're saying then, it's, it's, all, it's all very well that we're right, um, that she's in pain, yeah, she I'm needs relief, sure and, right, we, and, and, that, <laughs> and that she needs a rehab program. But then there's a big gap between how do we practically mm. overcome that. Fiona, do you feel like weighing in? What would you yeah, be suggesting here? I think the first thing we need to do is try and, you know, get the why. You know, why is this family not wanting pain relief? You know, I think any time as nurses where we jump to judgment about thinking that someone is doing something for purely negative reasons, it doesn't help us form a good patient-family relationship as nurses. And I think if we can come to it with a level of deeper understanding, we might get somewhere that helps us move the situation forward where maybe we no longer need to advocate, we've just educated Mm -hmm. and we've moved people along Mm. towards uh, an approach that we think is appropriate. But if we don't ask why and we start with judgment, we might well find it hard to get any good outcome other than taking away from their parents their responsibility as being parents, and it would be better if we could avoid that. So I would be going back to the family saying, look, I understand you're nervous, and I understand that you're concerned about the amount of pain relief your child's had. Can you tell me why? And so you think the nurse should do that, or the nursing staff should do that, Fiona, and to send the doctors or the social worker in? Oh, I'd, I'd like to think that the nurse will ask the question first before we go and rally the troops. You know, I think it's a, as I said before, I think we've got the opportunity. We are in and out of rooms all the time providing care. If you can have this as a conversation rather than a confrontation, then I suspect we might get a better outcome earlier than if it's a conf- confrontation of I'm coming with the social worker and the medical team because we all think you're making a bad decision and that you're not looking after your child properly. Mm. That's not going to help us move together very well. And it's interesting when you you brought in earlier about emotion because I think this sort of scenario when a kid's in pain and parents aren't doing the right thing, I mean, you feel something Mm. and it's not wrong to have emotions about that, but the way we respond and I think, you you know, we we often do respond with judgments. Yeah. Precisely, not not going to, yep. not going to help. Eve, is it unrealistic to think that in this scenario there might be, you know, one of the nursing staff who's been a little bit more involved and a lot more shifts, you know, naturally sort of form some bonds who might be someone able to have that conversation both with the parents and perhaps with uh, the child herself too to find out what's happening. Absolutely, John. Um, I think it's vital for the for the nurse to play that role in a situation like this. I think it's a responsibility, and. It, again, it comes down to understanding why, like Fiona mentioned, and then educating and empowering the patient and the family to hopefully come up with a decision that everyone's happy with. I think there could be backstory um, as to why there may be some hesitancy on the parent's side. They may need to learn a bit more about the medications that uh, have been prescribed because if they've got more context and understanding, they'll be better informed to be able to make a decision about the care and the treatment of their child to aid in her recovery. A couple of things that I just wanted to mention on a scenario like this in terms of advocacy in nursing, particularly in paediatrics, it does add another level of complexity because you're not just treating the child, you're treating the family unit. And like we've acknowledged, sometimes people have differing views about what's best or what's right or what what someone wants. So I think that's something that we need to consider in these conversations because it, there, are, there are wider views and beliefs to consider rather than just one person, which may differ in adult healthcare. Then you can look at it from the side of the parents. The parents feel as though they're acting as the advocate for the patient mm-hmm. in this scenario. But then the clinicians, the nurses, the medical team, the social workers, we also feel like we're advocating for the 
you know, well-being of this patient. And then when those two things differ, that's when you need to go, okay, what what isn't balancing here and what conversations need to be had to make sure everyone's acting in the best interests of the child. I think that's a really terrific point, even it is it encapsulates for me one of the, my worries about the idea of advocacy, um, which, remember, belongs initially in a legal context where you're speaking up for someone. And in that legal context, it is almost a competition, isn't it? So there's someone arguing for and against, um, and the idea is that the truth or justice will come out of that competition or even confrontation. But when we bring it over to the healthcare context, if you allow that idea, idea of... Um, of confrontational advocacy to move over with you, you're potentially setting up a really bad situation, aren't you? So if you're going to say it's my responsibility to advocate, the question of how you go about Mm. it is really very ethically important. Um, And I guess that's one of the things I would suggest we need to keep in mind is not just I'm going to advocate, but how am I going to do it in a way that is likely to be effective but also Mm. mend or build relationships rather than destroy them and lower the temperature rather than raise the temperature. And I think that that is challenging. You know, healthcare systems can be really stressful. They're stressful for staff, they're stressful for patients and families. And that naturally means, and on top of that, everyone brings their life into this Mm. place. So all of the competing forces that happen outside of the four walls of a hospital are still present in each individual that comes in here. And I think that's where, for me, I, I don't expect nurses to be devoid of emotion. I don't expect them to not be able to, you know, feel the impact of things. But I think that that's where we need to be really careful about when we see a a barrier that we think advocacy is needed to address, that we bring the the rational sound mind to the table. There might be an emotional element there that Mm. we're really passionate about. But if we go with expecting the best intentions of everyone... Um, and we're trying to have the conversation where we think everyone's best interests are at the heart of the conversation we're having rather than someone truly trying to make this child experience pain, Um, we're more likely to get ahead. But I think it is really hard, and I think sometimes suspending that emotional impact of the things we see and the conversations we have to be able to advocate with less emotion is where we get the best benefit, Mm. but it's hard. And I think there is time for emotion too, mm. um, which probably comes out in the debrief yep. later on. And I think, you know, we ethics sometimes has a role. Yeah. But what I'm also seeing here is to help us, you know, turn down the judgmentometer, yep. you know, is this generous feeling, sensation that as paediatric clinicians, we acknowledge that parents are going into bat for the kids. Mm. They're, they're advocating for the kids. That's their job to do that. Now, what we sometimes end up with is a clash of advocacy or clash mm. of, of values, but we keep mm. it generous in here and yeah. then we work out. In this situation that we're involved in, what happened was that the mum had been on narcotics following a car mm. accident herself, a different accident, mm. uh, and spent a long time mm. um, getting over her dependency. Mm. And so that was one of the key drivers mm. uh, here and needed some careful mm. explanation, but it wasn't until we'd somebody had gone in and mm. had that conversation and understood and then provided the information education about how we're aware of that and also yeah. working yeah. Um, not to do that, yeah. Yeah. were we able to move forward. Yeah. If, uh, but Eve, if you were stuck on the ward, so, you know, uh, Fiona said, you know, you're the, 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 the ward nurse and then you've approached your unit manager and the unit manager and you were thinking, well, I don't know how to advance this and, you know, maybe the answer isn't coming out so clearly from the parents. You know, what what, what are your options from there? There are a few different things that I would recommend um, people to pursue if they're in a situation like this. I think points of escalation may only get you so far or sometimes people in those positions, i.e. your direct line manager, may not have the answer or the solution or be able to provide the level of support or guidance that 
may be required in a complex situation like this. And that's when we've got to utilise other resources available to us. And it's about building awareness of services like clinical ethics, response group meetings, making referrals to that service, because then that's you advocating for that patient by having a really wholesome conversation, um, you know, putting all ideas on the table and asking questions that you can do so in a really safe forum with people who are really experienced to be able to support those conversations. That's a great idea. Lynn, how would, how would you know, Eve as the, the, the nurse or the, unit man- or the associate unit manager then sort of access, access you and, and clinical ethics for yep. support? So it's not hard. <laughs> there are a number of ways to do it. Um, so if you looked for us, Eve, on the website and just search clinical ethics, for example, you will find a pager number and phone numbers. You can actually put in an order through EMR um, or you could just contact us in person. For nursing staff, we're now very fortunate to have a bioethics CNC, Jenny O'Neill, and she might be a really good place to start with for someone who will understand what the clinical setting is and perhaps some of the the complexities around it. And then we can help tailor a response to the particular situation. And I guess what we're trying to do here is, I love the way you said, this is advocacy to make a referral to clinical ethics, which is where that that connection between ethics and advocacy comes from, because you're trying to get the right outcome. But if you're making a referral to clinical ethics, it's not with the idea that I know what the right outcome is. Mm. It's with the idea that this is an ethically important situation and needs to be taken seriously and and sorted out. Uh, And you're waiting to see what that sorting out will be. Absolutely. And there's different people that bring different points of view and expertise, which is really valuable to make sure um, you can have a really wholesome discussion. Um, So people walking away from that meeting or from that group are getting something out of it that they can take back to that patient. Right. Lynn, I'm curious, if you Mm. had a nurse in that situation make a referral to Mm. the ethics response Mm. group and they had some sense that it was a contentious Mm. referral, Mm. in your team, what do you do to support the nurse that has stepped up to say, look, I'm a bit nervous about this, but I think it's the right thing to do to contact you guys, but I'm not sure everyone in my team agrees to protect that individual and having made that call? Yep. So what I would suggest is that that person contact us confidentially in the first instance. So if you phone or page or email, we can have uh, a non-documented, completely confidential conversation and figure out a strategy, basically. Uh, And if it's contentious, um, then there are different ways that we could manage that without uh, a formal referral having to come from an individual nurse. So that's a really good point. Fiona, depending on what the nature of the situation is. Of course, it might be that um, everybody involved in in the team caring for this child are are worried about this and the nurse raising it is kind of a relief (laughs) to to everybody. Um, But you're right, it might not Mm. be welcome sometimes. Mm. Um, So contacting us for just a a confidential chat first would be good. Good place to start. Good to know. And and sometimes we can join a mult, you know, a nursing group and, and talk yep. about that. And Jenny and I have done that. We can join a multidisciplinary team mm. meeting, or we can sort of take part in a formal ethics response group. And I think what I was sensing Eve from you is just the just the process of that ethics response group is is helpful. So we don't always uh, get the outcome that. totally the best outcome, but we can usually get a good process and that can be be really helpful. So in this case, we've sort of thought about the individual. Have you got any other situations uh, more generally about, you know, where where Lynn was going earlier where we've actually, well, the individuals want something, but the ward needs something else? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the difficult things through working through COVID pandemic in a hospital was restricting the amount of visitors that could be at the bedside to visit a patient. So in the depths of the pandemic, it was limited to one parent or caregiver at the bedside at one time. And at that time, I was the nurse unit manager of the cardiac and renal ward. And we had really complex, really unwell patients um, undergoing huge cardiac surgeries, um, transplants, and we're caring for some really vulnerable patients and families. And 
One day, one of the nursing team members, uh, I think she went through the ANUM first and then the ANUM came to me as the nurse unit manager because any exemptions that were made for visitors entering the hospital in addition to the one at the bedside rule needed either management or director, sometimes even executive approval. And the, the bedside nurse was really advocating strongly for this patient because it was a, a quite a newborn, uh, only a couple of weeks old, had undergone um, surgery within the first week of life and the mother was at the bedside and really needed some additional support and the nurse was advocating and asking for an exemption to allow an additional visitor um, come and help provide some support at the bedside for this newborn and, and this mother. And this was a really tricky scenario to manage as a nurse and as a nurse unit manager, because my head and my heart were telling me very different things. I knew that this family would benefit from having additional support. I Speaking to them, I knew that they were, you know, at risk of deterioration and, you know, concerned for their well-being. And ordinarily, I would go, absolutely, send another visitor in, you know, it's it's evident that that would be beneficial for this patient and family. However, it was far more complex than that to make that decision because I was managing a ward of 30 patients who all had one visitor. So that's 60 patients and parents or caregivers on the ward at one time. And then I had a team of nursing staff and, you know, allied health people, medical staff coming in and out of the ward. And I had to assess the risk. And this was when nobody was vaccinated. The whole community was in lockdown. And the risk that I need to consider was if I make an exemption for an extra person to come in, if that person was sick and made that vulnerable baby sick or gave it to the mother and then extended onto the staff with transmission and then wiped out the whole nursing team or forced the ward into 14-day lockdown, which we did see in some clinical areas, I didn't want to wear that risk. And it was a really difficult decision to make because while I thought it was in that patient and mother's best interest to have an additional support person, the greater risk that I had to consider was for the rest of the ward and for the team that I was managing at that time. And that was really difficult. And how did you you resolve that, Eve? I had a very honest conversation with the bedside nurse and I explained the rationale by not making that exemption because one of the other things that I was considering was if I make an exemption for this particular patient, there were many other patients that were in similar situations and then I would have felt obliged in my duty for having made an exception for one family to then give it to the next person that asked and then the next person that asked. And with every exemption that I was going to make, I was then placing greater risk at, you know, exposing the patients and the parents and the staff on the ward to COVID at that time when it was a very real and scary thing with not being protected or being, you know, immune or, you know, community cases were really low at that point. And I explained my decision and rationale to the bedside nurse. And I think rather than making a decision and moving on, I think providing context is really important in a situation like that because they're doing what they think is right and they're advocating and speaking up for what they believe in. And to have a manager or someone higher up shut that down can be really disconcerting or disheartening or, you know, I'm the big bad boss, but I needed to explain why and how I came to that decision. And also that we had directives from the Department of Health and Executive that Mm. really limited our ability to make exemptions at that time to keep everyone safe. So I think even with that sort of hard back up from Department of Health. I think there's a tremendous amount of responsibility on your shoulders and I think we talked before about how you respond to the person advocating as mm. well as the situation. Mm. Lynn, that was full of ethics. Yes, it was. <laughs> and I was thinking as Eve was speaking how important it is to have an understanding of ethics to supplement your understanding of advocacy. Because if we saw advocacy through um, a somewhat more emotional lens, as Fiona was talking about before, so the nurse feeling very strongly and caring for this family comes to you with 
an obviously reasonable request mm. and you say no. Mm. And so that makes you look the bad guy mm. and feel, looks like you don't care and maybe the nurse thinks, okay, Eve doesn't care, so now I've got to say things that will make her mm. care or at least make her feel bad for not caring mm. and it becomes this sort of mm. um, emotional clash, whereas what you are able to do is to say, I understand the reason you're making Mm. this request perfectly valid. Yes, it would be actually beneficial to this family. It's appropriate for you to come and tell me that. Here's the picture for me. I've got to take into account this family and all of the other Mm. families and the nursing staff. So I've got a different lens. I bring Mm. in uh, particularly that justice consideration. I have to be fair across Mm. families, not just look at this one. So here's the reason that I'm making this decision. Um, and it sounds like it that was it went okay in those terms. You didn't come to blows. No, no, no. We didn't come to blows. You managed to keep working together. Yes, absolutely. And I think that nurse appreciated the consideration and the explanation mm. um, because sometimes if you're looking after one patient and family at that time, that's what you're focusing on. And that nurse didn't have the experience or the insight that I had in my role as the manager of that department at that time. So I think it was appreciated that um, she was able to have that understanding and context to how that decision was made in the end. Mm. Well, I think that might be a really good place for us to to finish. We've had just such a fantastic and actually wide-ranging discussion, although I do think, Fiona, we might have a little bit left for another podcast about advocacy in, mm. in systems and, and mm. nursing uh, staff mm. role in that. Mm. But, Lynn, I've learned that advocacy is everywhere, like ethics is everywhere, and they're not exactly the same, but they are very closely related. I also learned it's a bit of a tightrope, I think, to get to get right. Mm. But I also know from working here that there's so much of it going on, and mm. that's a good thing, not just because there's such a difficult system, particularly at the moment. And just as a reminder to our listeners, we had a wonderful series of podcasts about pandemic ethics and these are some of the things that came up. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, then you might want to go and find some more. But for today, Eve and Fiona, thank you very much for joining us on Essential Ethics. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. And Lynn, thank you very much for coming and uh, joining us too and putting uh, some ethical language to our discussion today. A joy as always, John. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, you might like to give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with your colleagues. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Dame Elizabeth Murdoch Nursing Development Scholarship. Podcast is recorded and edited in Creative Services here at Royal Children's Hospital. It was produced by Dr. Jenny O'Neill, Clinical Nurse Consultant Bioethics. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Royal Children's Hospital Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, please visit us at rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics, be inspired. <laughs> <laughs>